Hello, welcome to today's episode of the Clinical Care Options podcast series, A Bold Panoramic Grasp of Tardite Dyskinesia. I'm Dr. Deanna Perkins, Professor of Psychiatry at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Here with me today is Dr. Rajiv Tandon, Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry at Western Michigan University Homer Stryker MD School of Medicine. Today, we will be discussing the available management options for tardive dyskinesia. And in addition to discussing specific management options, we hope to provide you with some clinical considerations for individualizing treatment. So Dr. Tandon, let's get started. We've known that antipsychotic-induced tardive dyskinesia is an adverse event um, since the 1950s, but until 2017, there were no FDA-approved treatments. So what are these FDA-approved medications for TD? Well, Deanna, it's, it's, it's a pleasure working with you and sharing our thoughts together uh, on the newer treatments for tardive dyskinesia. Well, not that new now because they've been around since 2017, past five years. Uh, but we've been dealing with tardive dyskinesia uh, for 60 plus years uh, since antipsychotics uh, were first utilized in the 1950s. And uh, until 2017, we had no approved treatments. Uh, the first approved treatment for tardive dyskinesia uh, was actually uh, April uh, of 2017. Uh, valbenazine, and later uh, in August that year, uh, butetrabenazine was also approved for the treatment of tardive dyskinesia. Now, both these agents are uh, basically developments on a re relatively old compound, tetrabenazine. Uh, as we know, recipine actually, uh, for those who want to go back in history, recipine was the first treatment, drug treatment, for schizophrenia, uh, even before chlorpromazine, uh, Bose in 1940 basically introduced it to treat a psychosis. Uh, but recipine, like tetrabenazine, belongs to a class of uh, medications called VMAT inhibitors or vesicular monomine transporter inhibitors. Now, these, uh, as, as, as we know, uh, for neurotransmission to occur, uh, there has to be the neurotransmitter in the presynaptic site that's going to release the neurotransmitter. Now, in, in the cytoplasm, there is monovene oxidase, uh, an enzyme that metabolizes, uh, that would destroy the neurotransmitter, which is why the neurotransmitter has to be stored in vesicles. And the vesicular monomene transporter essentially arranges the, the movement of the neurotransmitter once it's synthesized into these vesicles in which it's stored. Now, what the VMAT inhibitor, like recipine or tetrabenazine do, is that they uh, basically prevent this from happening. So the neurotransmitter stays in the presynaptic uh, neuron and is metabolized. So once the presynaptic neuron wants to uh, send a message, there is very little neurotransmitter to be released. So in effect, it's depleting uh, the presynaptic vesicle the presynaptic neuron of the neurotransmitter. Now, obviously, the other way to reduce transmission at that site is to block the receptor on the postsynaptic site uh, and so that you can block neurotransmission that way. But this is another mechanism of inhibiting 
neurotransmission. Now, recipe is a non-selective VMAT inhibitor. Uh, there are two kinds of uh, vesicular monomine transporters, VMAT1 and 2. VMAT1 is, is there in the periphery as also the central nervous system, or VMAT2 is selective to the central nervous system. Since recipine is not selective, if you use it for any central purpose, it's going to cause a whole slew of side effects. Now, tetrabenazine is a selective VMAT2 uh, inhibitor. And so it's, it could, it's potentially useful for depleting the central nervous system of the neurotransmitter, if you will. Uh, but it has a very short half-life because of which it causes a whole range of side effects. Tetrabenazine has been available for the past 70 years. It was approved in the UK and many other countries for the treatment of Huntington's Korea uh, in the 1970s. But the FDA only approved it for treatment of uh, uh, Huntington's Korea in 2008. So which is why I used to send some of my patients to Canada to get tetrabenazine uh, in the event of very severe TD uh, that needed treatment. In any event, the developments were valbenazine and butetrabenazine which basically are developments on tetrabenazine. They utilize its effects, but significantly lengthen the half-life of the medication. Valbenazine basically is a prodrug, which is metabolized to one of the active metabolites of uh, tetrabenazine uh, and it has a half-life of almost 22 hours. Uh, deutetrabenazine substitutes hydrogen with deuterium or heavy hydrogen and thereby slows down the metabolism of the medication and that thereby extends its uh, half-life. These are the two uh, medications and they have significantly revolutionized treatments uh, for tardive dyskinesia. I'm just wondering uh, what your experience has been using these medications. Yeah, the so I've been impressed with um, how well they work. Um, both both medications can be re remarkably effective in reducing symptoms of tardive dyskinesia. But but I also um, it, I I also understand that they don't just affect dopamine availability. Um, you know, I know we as you were talking, I know we we think that tardive dyskinesia may be related to hypersensitivity of these dopamine receptors. And that's sort of the reason why we may want to deplete the availability of dopamine for the receptors. However, they don't just deplete dopamine. It's major effects on dopamine, but it also can affect serotonin and norepinephrine. And that may explain some of the um, uh, side effects that we can see with these VMAT2 inhibitors. So I think that's just something important to remember. It's not exclusively the dopamine system that's being affected but also other monoamines. Absolutely. And I think it's important to keep just the name in mind. It's vesicular monoamine uh, transporter inhibitor. It's not dopamine vesicle transporter inhibitor. I mean, so norepinephrine and serotonin are also affected, which is why I think, you know, the fact that it's VMAT2 selective at least eliminates the peripheral side effects uh, that could be caused and that are caused by recipient, for example. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind, uh, you know, as you were discussing, uh, the fact that they affect 
serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine in terms of depletion, it's important to keep in mind, I think, that tetrabenazine, because of the fact that it has a short half-life, also has a much higher Cmax. So basically, you get a high, high levels, low levels, high levels, low levels with tetrabenazine, because of which you get a variety of side effects, which you are much less likely to see both with valbenazine and eutetrabenazine. And I think that's an important uh, distinction that people need to keep in mind as to why tetrabenazine has been available for 60, 70 years. And only now, five years ago, we got these two new compounds, which are clearly effective uh, for the treatment uh, of, uh, of tardive dyskinesia. All right, that, that on-off phenomenon is really uh, really important to understand. That there's trouble tolerating tetrabenazine because of its short half-life. So the lengthened half-life is, is very important, but it also can be is something that clinicians need to be aware of because of the drug metabolism. You know, these are deuterbenazine is a CYP2D6 drug. And so we do have to be aware of drug interactions. And that's something for clinicians to keep in mind. And I think valbenazine um, is, is, a, is also a, a 3A4, but that metabolite is a CYP2D6. So they were designed to have longer half-lives um, related to their liver metabolism. But we do have to be very careful with these drugs in terms of drug interactions and other drugs that are being prescribed and adjust the doses accordingly. Well, talking about butetrabenazine uh, uh, for starters, uh, it, it, you know, a flexible dose trial, a fixed dose trial, uh, ranging from 12 to 48 milligrams per day uh, in two divided doses, whenever you go beyond 12 milligrams per day. Uh, and both found uh, it to be effective uh, in the treatment of tardive dyskinesia. Uh, interestingly, uh, you know, when one looks at the cl minimally clinically important change, if you will, where patients notice a significant difference uh, and clinicians notice a significant difference, that usually translates to a reduction in AIM scores of about two or more, if you will. And in these trials with butetrabenazine, uh, the, the reduction was about three points on average, if you will, uh, 24 to 48 milligrams is the recommended dosage now. Uh, and you start off at 12 milligrams per day, and then you go up. You can go up a maximum six milligrams a day, if you will. I think it's available in six, nine, and 12 milligram uh, dose, uh, uh, dose forms. Uh, and you can go up to 48 milligrams per day. Uh, although typically I have gone up, um, I usually almost always go up to about 36 milligrams per day, and sometimes to 48. How about you? I think that the same and what I'm, I'm, of course, titrating on symptom response. We do see we can see responses within the first week, um, but we really do want to optimize the uh, clinical response um, to, to the drug to not because there is a dose response relationship there. Patients can do better on higher doses. So you're always balancing the tolerability, uh, um, the subjective toler tolerability especially with you know, some of the, the side effects that patients may just have trouble, annoying side effects, but they can, they can impact a, a patient's willingness to, to go up. So things like fatigue, sedation, mm -hmm. 
um, trouble sleeping, um, restlessness. Like those, those are the rate limiting side effects. So titrating up for tolerability, but really trying to optimize those outcomes because we, it, I've seen tardive dyskinesia go into remission. Um, and you know, that's what I hope to achieve with patients. So, um, so yeah, right. It's a, it is a, there is a balance and, but it is great that you do see responses pretty, uh, pretty soon after initiating treatment. Well, well with valvedazine, uh, you know, uh, again, there were, the trials were very, uh, were, were clearly illustrated its, its effectiveness of both the Connect 2 and the Connect 3 trials and now the Connect 4, the long-term uh, study, if you will. Uh, and with valvedazine, it's, uh, it, uh, you just have to dose once a day. Um, and, and with butetrabenazine, the other thing to keep in mind, I think, is you should give it with food. Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be a huge uh, calorie uh, intake along with it, about 300 calories or so, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with food. Uh, with valvedazine, you don't have to, you can give it with or without food. It is not affected by a food. Uh, usually, I started 40 milligrams per day. and uh, if tolerated, I almost always go up to 80 milligrams per day uh, in week two. And my experience, and also based on data, if you will, is that it's more effective at the, although some patients do respond at 40 milligrams per day, uh, the response is better at 80 milligrams per day. And, you know, uh, the number needed to treat, for example, i.e., how many patients do you need to treat with this medication for one? Uh, patient to show clear benefit, uh, the NNT for uh, dupetrobenazine across its doses was about seven, uh, I, I think. And for uh, valbenazine, for the 40 milligram dose was seven again, but for the 80 milligram dose was four, i.e. you have to treat four patients to see benefit in one, which is one of the reasons I go up to 80 milligrams per day, uh, you know, for most of my patients. But again, as you know, it's it's a critical thing to see if it's well tolerated, uh, and so to, uh, tolerability is important. But you really want to achieve good effectiveness. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 in the long term clinical trials, there were continued improvements even over the course of a year. Yes. So, you know, we can we can uh, we can hope to see that. And I know that's so important when we're counseling patients about what to expect with how these drugs are going to work, that the idea that there should, we should see some initial improvements, but that over time, these improvements should continue and um, we'll, we'll, we'll know how well it will work optimally um, if, we get, if we give this medicine a chance. When, you, uh, when you're starting a patient, either on valbenazine or butetrobenazine, uh, Deanna, what, what tests, what studies do you almost routinely do? Well, so beyond sort of routine routine studies to to understand liver function because these are liver metabolized, we want to make sure that the liver is working well. I also do like to get a EKG. Um, there there is a a, a a risk of QT prolongation, especially if they're taking other medications that prolong the QT um, QTC level. And so we do want to uh, make sure we kind of understand where a person's baseline is. And it's one of the other things that I counsel patients about when we're starting this medication is just, just be careful about drug interactions. Ask your pharmacist before 
taking any over-the-counter medicines or even if there's a prescribed medicine to just to make sure that there aren't any interactions with these uh, because they are they're, they're safe medicines um, um, in, in general in general very well tolerated but that the risk of that QTC prolongation um, with especially with other drugs is something that I want patients to be aware of and I do want to have a, a baseline um, I know some clinicians will consider a a second EKG when there's a drug a dose increase, um, you know, before the drug and then after the drug started and then um, with, with dose increases. Um, it, um, so I'm depending on the age of the person and their comorbid medical conditions, I'm more or less uh, concerned with follow-up EKGs, but I'm not sure how to, how do you approach that? that issue? I, you know, again, like you, I, I would routinely get a uh, liver function test I, I get a CBC. Uh, that's that's a routine yeah. thing. But the liver function test is important. Um, and certainly, as you mentioned, a clear, a, a complete list of everything that the patient is taking, all the medications the patient is taking, because there are a number of drug interactions to be aware of. I mean, certainly you don't take it for the monamine oxidase inhibitor, for example. Uh, you don't take both butetrabenazine and valbenazine together, for example. If you've got a 2D6 inhibitor, like many of the SSRIs, fluoxetine, et cetera, you really want to make sure you don't go to the higher doses, if you will. Um, you might want to use lower doses. Uh, and then uh, with valbenazine, uh, any medication that affects the 3A4 is something you want to take a closer look at. If it's a 3A4 inhibitor, you want to use lower doses but you can use valbenazine. But if you're looking at a 3A4 in, uh, in, uh, inducer, then in that case, you've got, you probably want, may want to avoid valbenazine or discontinue the inducer, if you will, uh, just because of, of the way the thing is metabolized. So I get a routine EKG at the outset because of the issue of QTC prolongation. But I, unless clearly and clinically indicated, I don't usually get a follow-up EKG. I do want to go back to the studies that we need to do because I don't want us to forget the importance of measurement when we're assessing the severity of these symptoms. And so in addition to the laboratory studies, we should do an AIMS, right? But, I mean, it's one of these things that's, that's um, straightforward to do, and we should be monitoring improvement with the, with the AIMS over time. Um, it's, so I think that we, we can't forget that. And because there is this black box warning about suicidality, it really does behoove us to make sure that in our um, psychiatric evaluation, we assess for for suicidal thoughts that we know the person's baseline, baseline um, level of suicidal thoughts and um, and and discuss with them a uh, let them be have them be aware that this is very rare, but if it occurs, it is something we need to know about right right away um, and uh, develop a plan around around depression and suicidality from the from the get-go because it's not it's something that of course is um, again it, it is rare but so serious. Absolutely. You know I think that's a critical point I think you know I mean obviously you must do a structured movement disorder uh, assessment aims. Uh, you know, prior to starting either of the two medications, valbenazine or butetrabenazine, uh, and I would repeat the structured measurement 
uh, at least every six months, if you will. Uh, uh, again, uh, you can use less structured uh, uh, measures, you know, over that period. But I would I would repeat it every six months. I think the interesting, the important thing about the black box warning that you mentioned, Deanna, about uh, the suicidality and depression, which are uh, side effects uh, uh, noted on that black box warning. Uh, if one looks at the data, those were much more prominent. Those were noted in patients with Huntington's chorea treated with these medications, uh, particularly with butetrabenazine, which was approved first for Huntington's chorea. Uh, much less the signal was much, much weaker or absent, actually, uh, in patients with tardive dyskinesia. Having said that, there is that black box warning, and it behooves one to kind of monitor uh, uh, patients for that, obviously. Well, what about what about insurance? I mean, have you had challenges with coverage? Right. So, so unfortunately, I I have seen challenges with insurance coverage. I'm actually grateful that the manufacturers of these drugs do offer fairly generous patient assistant programs, and um, so that may be a way to increase affordability for for patients um, where there isn't insurance coverage or where there's very high copays. You know, those are the two issues that 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 I I have run into. Um, um, so, but I do like to work with patients around trying to find um, ways that they can afford medications that that I think clearly have some advantages over the the, the generic tetrabenazine in terms of frequency of dosing and the on-off issues that we've been t- talking about. So, I I think in my experience, generally these can be managed, albeit these are expensive medications. However, tardive dyskinesia is an expensive problem for patients. Absolutely. And so and we need to balance those two issues. And a potentially a life-threatening one as well. Uh, you know what? Yeah. I've been actually uh, impressed that insurance companies over time have been more willing to cover uh, these medications. Initially, it was very, very, very difficult. But I believe, I mean, my experience has been better uh, more lately. Uh, I believe on average, about more than 50% of the Medicare programs cover valbenazine uh, and almost 70% of the Medicare programs cover butetrabenazine. And uh, a number of private uh, uh, insurers are also covering these medications now. Uh, on the downside, they are almost always they're at tier five, which involves the highest amount of copays, as you mentioned. And so they're tier five coverage, uh, and they, there is a prior auth- uh, authorization process uh, that all insurance companies require, uh, which is somewhat onerous, but you know I think worth it, as you point out, because tardive dyskinesia uh, is a serious problem. Uh, which significantly impacts the lives of patients uh, and is potentially life-threatening. And these medications do make a huge difference, if you will. And uh, the manufacturers do have programs uh, to support patients, uh, patient assistance programs, and also with co-pays. And co-pays can be significant, if you will, uh, $100 plus, if you will. Uh, And so there are ways of reducing 
uh, out-of-pocket expenses, and the manufacturer assistance programs do help. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that that I've learned with with several medicines, including these two, to inquire about the with patients about issues of copay and to remind them that if that's a barrier to to, to please try and make make use of these resources or um, they they may have other resources to help them with the copays, but but to 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 check in check into whether or not they're they can access some of these patient assistance programs. On the positive side, uh, and you must have had the same experience, Diana, it's wonderful seeing uh, how patients do once they are on these medications and the difference it makes in their lives. Well, yeah, that, I mean, this tardive dyskinesia, and I know this has been covered on, on, on other podcasts in this series, but tardive dyskinesia has so many negative consequences for individuals who are experiencing it, both the, the stigma, uh, the social consequences, and it can be so it's so um, as well as the, just the physical consequences, the impact it has on function, activity, daily living, especially when people are more severely affected. So, so, so absolutely, it's it's where I do want to go to bat for patients and really work with them because it can make a, such a difference in their quality of life. Um, so, I think it is it is worth it to to address barriers to accessing treatment and especially around the insurance companies. And you can go to back to patients and I'm of course willing to do that for folks, um, especially where, where the medication has, has good efficacy. When I was learning about treatment of tardive dyskinesia, there were all kinds of, of medications that were recommended to give a try, um, in, including anticholinergics. And so I wonder about um, which, you know, which we've now learned is, Perhaps not uh, may may actually make things worse, not better. Um, are there other kind of um, off label treatments that that you know about that should be avoided or that may be helpful? You know, I think uh, again, uh, there, there was a lot of excitement about vitamin E, about a whole range of different uh, treatments, if you will, which did not really pan out. Uh, the, the, some of the treatments that I do uh, consider, uh, clozapine itself is a very effective agent. Uh, 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 all the other antipsychotics, there are varying degrees of risk. Certainly, avoidance of tardive dyskinesia is something that's important, or reducing the likelihood by judicious use of antipsychotics. Certainly, second-generation antipsychotics, atypical agents, are less likely to cause tardive dyskinesia than typical agents, but there is a risk of tardive dyskinesia associated also with the atypical agents. Now, clonazepam, uh, benzodiazepine, is another agent that uh, has, I have found has some effectiveness, if you will, in some patients. And so that is one of the agents that I do tend to uh, utilize uh, in addition or to treat TD. Uh, in case uh, these other medications are not available or or partly effective. So that's that's one of the agents that I tend to utilize. Uh, uh, amantadine, ginkgo biloba have some data, soft data. Uh, but the other thing that I do do is in, if it's really, really severe, then in that case, if it's a focal dystonia, then I might think about, uh, you know, essentially, 
uh, using a- a- agents such as uh, you know, botulinum injections or something of that sort. Uh, if it's tardive dystonia, that's the case. And that's important to think about tardive dyskinesia as being a family of syndromes, if you will, a tardive mm-hmm. syndrome, if you will. Uh, akathisia would respond differently than other kinds of tardive syndromes, for example. If it's tardive dystonia, that is where anticholinergics have some benefit, if you will, clozapine and right. but only for tardive dystonia. Otherwise, as you pointed out, it would make things worse. And if it's particularly disabling, I would even consider ECT. Now, deep brain stimulation is considered, I mean, it's rarely available, if you will. But ECT is something that I do utilize for severely disabling tardive dyskinesia. How about you? So it, before the availability of, of these VMAT2 inhibitors, I would try lots of different things. And I think you're listing you know, some of the more desperate measures like the ECT. But since the advent of these VMAT2 inhibitors, I really think those are, they never, they didn't really work well. ECT can be a short-term treatment, but long-term, right, it doesn't work and it's hard to tolerate. So I think those were the approaches that um, we have to limited, uh, we have to limited set of tools in our toolbox um, until until recently. And so I tried lots of things. None of them worked very well. But benzodiazepines, I think, reduce, at least my, my clinical read was that they reduced anxiety. And we do know that TD symptoms vary. And that when people are stressed or anxious, they'll be more severe. When they're less stressed, they'll be um, less, you know, less severe. So they just vary about uh, according to, to stress level. And so benzodiazepines, I think, can help in, help in that way um, and maybe other ways. I do treat people early on in the, the course of, of schizophrenia. And I will see kind of the emergence of very, very mild um, dyskinetic movements. And one of the first things I will try is antioxidants like N-acetylcysteine or omega-3 fatty acids, um, maybe high-dose melatonin. Um, and beyond the dopamine hypersensitivity theory, there there, there is some um, evidence that tardiskinesia is related to um, oxidative stress and oxidative damage. This dorsal striatum is very metabolically active. There's a lot of free radicals, so it's so it's it's plausible. And so I think um, that. And there's been small clinical trials suggesting, especially omega-3 fatty acids, uh, maybe high-dose melatonin might be helpful. There's been case reports of N-acetylcysteine um, being helpful. Um, but again, we're talking here uh, not in the very earliest stages or when people are not severely affected. By the time they have AIM scores, right, or that are around three um, but I don't I've not found those sorts of management strategies to make, make those, much difference at those, all and those antioxidant strategies are well tolerated I mean and so I think you know certainly worth yeah. trying although the data they need to be more data in terms of exactly how effective and when they are uh, if you will and I agree with you in terms of uh, since the advent since the introduction, of the of butetrabenazine and valbenazine, I really, I probably used ECT in one patient, you know, with very severe tardive dyskinesia. Uh, the, use, the usage has gone down of those kind of treatments. Now, when you start patients on these medications, 
Are there any particularly concerning side effects that you ask them to watch for and call you right away? That, hey, if you have any of these, I want you to call me right away. Well, so I, I did. I generally let people know about kind of the the annoying side effects. It's you can see, for example, nausea. You can see agitation. You know, you can see insomnia. You know, these are these 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 have been reported. And so, um, anything that's particularly um, that's that's annoying the patient or is affecting tolerability, I'll ask them to call me on. But I definitely do want to warn them about that black box suicide and to have them call me if that happens. I, I haven't seen it happen. I, I, am, I, I think your explanation was good about wh- wh- why that could be and that this was certainly something that was seen in tetrabenazine and Huntington's disease. And so that black box carried forward. It's not something that's really been associated but with, with these um, um, n- newer drugs, but, but still that in my mind is, is the most important safety concern. You know, and otherwise they they know what to to expect, and um, and that it will be working together to try and find a dose that's tolerated and is um, helpful. So, um, but but be, and beyond that, and warning them about drug interactions, and that they should be discussing with their pharmacist or the other prescribing doctor that they're on this other medication because we do know that at higher doses, if there's effects on metabolism of these drugs at high levels. Um, increase that QTC prolongation. So there's two serious things that I worry about that are that are rare, but people need to be aware of. Um, and other than that, no, it's pretty well tolerated. And so it's only if they're running into issues with, I just can't, you know, it's making me too sleepy. I don't want to take it kind of thing. Um, um, there's not very much. What about, what else do you warn pa- patients about? You know, all the things that you mentioned, uh, Diana, and it- The other things I do caution them about is ultimately this is the dopamine depleting drug. And so, you know, the effects of reducing dopamine transmission, uh, such as you can get akathisia, you can get, you can become worsening of Parkinson's, you can get, uh, and if you get, say, clumsiness or unsteadiness or restlessness, can't sit still, drooling, if you have any of those experiences, I want you to call me. If you have a trembling, for example, like a Parkinsonian tremor, or if you have trouble walking, I want you to call me. And the other thing that I do caution them about is the rare but important side effect of allergy. If you have hives, or if you have itching, if you develop welts, uh, or if you've got skin, uh, a red skin rash, things of that sort, any of that happens, I want you to call me because it's rare, but uh, but you know you can get that kind of reaction. In which case, I want to be informed. But otherwise, as you point out, these are very well tolerated medications. I want to thank you very much for this conversation, Doctor Tandon. I've learned learned something as as always, and I've um, enjoyed it very much. And I also wanted to thank um, the the listeners um, for their attention. We hope you have found this discussion informative for your clinical practice. And if you'd like more information on this series, please visit the show notes. Thank you. Thank you.